Okay, so who thinks the world is getting better? Okay, two people. It's good. Fine. World's getting worse? Oh, a lot of hands. A lot of hands. Okay. Um, uh, maybe a little of both? Anybody? A little of both? Maybe a little, little bit of a dichotomy there, right? Um, yeah, so a lot of people, if you ask a lot, oh, that's actually a really high number, but you ask a lot of people, a lot of people seem to think that the world is getting worse. If you ask them, they're like, it is definitely getting worse. Well, let me, let me suggest to you that there are a few things that are getting dramatically better about our world. Empirically speaking, scientifically speaking, life expectancy is getting longer. Health is getting better. Medical answers. There are people in this room right now that you're only in this room because of medical procedures that came about in the last 30 to 40 years. There would be people missing in this room if it wasn't for medical procedures that have come about in the last 30 to 40 years. Okay, quality of life, higher for most people. Opportunities to have a better life. Opportunities to have education, to have information. We have better communication, connections around the world. Used to be you had to, to start a business, you had to hire a bunch of people and you had to have a product and you had to be able to ship it somewhere. Now you can do all of that from your living room. Um, opportunities are on the rise. Travel, even though it's sometimes a pain, right? <laughs> The ability to travel, the ability to connect with someone else somewhere else. There's dramatically less, actually less violence and less war globally than there has been in maybe the history of the world. There's a lot less poverty. A lot of, you know, we, we, we hear a lot of complaints about racism right now in our culture. But you know what's good? People are complaining about racism. Right? There's outrage over the racism. It's not excused. It's like, no, we can't have this anymore. In so many ways, empirically, our world is getting a lot better. There's advances in technology that are going to be crazy in the next few years. As some of these technologies like computer power, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, all this stuff uh, in the virtual world, the metaverse is going to provide opportunities that people just never even dreamed of. The world, in a lot of ways, is getting better. And yet, that's not what our gut is, is it? That's not what we think is happening, is it? In fact, some scholars are saying that the world is so far advanced that really a lot of our world needs to change. There's an a, a a Israeli author named Yuval Noah Harari. And he says that the world is so far advanced that we don't need God anymore. Right, that, that, that we don't need to rely on faith in a God outside the world because we have so much control in the world. His, his main book was called Homo Deus, the human God. That was, his, that was his principle. That actually part of the problem with the world is God and we need to get rid of God. Now the problem is a few things. Number one, there are some signs that the world is not getting better. For all the advancements that we've had in the last hundred years, we've also had World wars, holocausts, systemic racism, genocide, Hiroshima. Okay, there's a lot of addiction, a lot of ways that we are damaging marriage and family. So, so the idea that we just got smarter and got more technology in the world will automatically get better, that, one, that, that ship has sailed, right? So in some ways, you, you could say, yeah, there are some signs. But also, it just doesn't feel better either, does it? Like there's a pessimism that's growing in our world about how it's going and, and how bad the world is going to get. And we start talking about all these technologies and it's terrifying. 
right? And we start thinking about a future and it's, and it's scary. And so anxiety is up, depression is up, suicide is more prevalent than, than I've ever remember seeing it. Addiction, divorce, marriage, uh, moral fa- failure that, that ends a marriage or ends a family. Like those are daily occurrences that I hear about from people that I know. There still is racism, division. There's a lot of questions about where will technology take us? Can our earth, our planet handle the kind of use that we're putting it through? What is the future of the, as my professor calls it, disunited states of America, right? That we are so divided. What is the answer to this? What is the answer to our churches that seem to be in such decline? Yeah, there's a, there's a real struggle here. A lot of questions. In life, even though that we can point to some ways life is getting better, in so many ways, it definitely doesn't feel better. And I think the pandemic did a lot for this because there, there was like this, this sort of optimism that, man, we're in this new global economy. Isn't that great? We're so connected and we can get products from around the world. Yeah, until we also get diseases from around the world, right? Until, like, like, so this global connected world, also when something's bad, we're globally connected. And so we're not so optimistic about that world anymore. So what is the answer? As Harari suggests, is it the abandonment of God? Clearly, I'm a pastor and I don't think so. No, I I think that part of the way the world has gotten better is because Christians have been at the forefront of looking at medicine and caring for the poor and doing a lot of things to move the world forward. I think Christians have been at the center of so much of human flourishing. And I think for the future, Christians need to be a source of hope in this world. So how do, we, how do we become that as Christians? Because we all seem so hopeless. Through plagues and through wars and through persecution, Christians have found a unique hub, a unique center to say, this is where we're going to keep our hope, and this is where we're going to find uh, a security, and this is where we're going to have our stronghold. That's kind of a unique place. It's, the, it's, it's really at its center, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This idea that Jesus died on a cross and then that Jesus came back from the dead. For some reason, Christians not like we, we love the example of Jesus and how loving he was. But if you don't have a cross, you don't have a resurrection for Christians. The, there's not the same kind of hope. There's this unique center the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, for which Christians have, throughout all these things in this, in this world, found hope and peace and security and the ability to keep moving forward without falling into the pessimism that everybody else seems to have. But it's odd, isn't it, that you would celebrate the cross, that you would celebrate the death of your leader. Like, deaths of leaders, martyrs, are great examples for people. Okay? But they're not normally seen as sources of hope. Okay? It's a little bit hopeless that your leader was killed. But for us, it is a source of hope. This emblem of suffering and shame became this emblem of hope. That, and it's so weird to me. Like if you think about it, people in the first century, if they came in and saw crosses hanging in the front of our building, like that's a torture device, everybody. Like for a first century person, that's like having an electric chair at the front of your church. 
That's how weird it is that that symbol went from being this emblem of suffering and shame, this emblem of persecution and cruelty, to for us becoming this symbol of hope. And so over the next few weeks, we're, we're, we're talking about experiencing Easter. And I, I wanna, we're going to go through the narrative to talk about the story of Easter. But today I want to try to set up for you why do we find hope in these particular events. And so I want to give you one diagram and two metaphors. One diagram and two metaphors. Hence the flip chart. Okay? So we're a little low tech today, but that's okay. We're going back to the beginning of the story. In the beginning, God created humanity. He created people. And he did it differently. All the rest of creation God made with his voice. All the rest of creation God made with his voice. But when it came to building humans, he did something different. He played in the dirt. We are the only handmade creation in the whole of the world. And in fact, we aren't created, if you read the story, we're not totally created out of nothing. We're created out of this world. We are part of this world. And God created us to be a part of his continued creation work. He said, be fruitful, multiply, multiply, subdue the earth, fill it. Okay, have kids, take care of this world, turn this world into something beautiful. Here's how my friend Dave McDonald says it. The creator created creators to perpetuate creation. Let me say it again. The creator created creators to perpetuate creation. That's what humanity did. Humanity, God, God made us to be creators. And to do that, he put us in four relationships. Now, if, if you've been around, I've done this before. You may have seen this before. But for a lot of you, it's new. So I'm doing it anyway. Um, we had a relationship with God. And if you, if you follow us through in Genesis, we were made to be near God, to be with God. God walked around. He talked to us. There was a closeness in our relationship with God. Okay, God, God also put us in a relationship with ourself. Now that sounds weird to say, but let me explain. Your relationship with yourself. Adam and Eve are so secure in who they are that they are naked and not ashamed. Like they're so secure in who they are and who they are in God that they don't worry about what anybody else thinks. Could you imagine this? Okay, how much time did you spend in the mirror this morning? Adam and Eve didn't do that at all because they didn't care what other people felt. They just were totally secure in, I am here. I am on a mission to create and subdue in this world. And uh, that's where I'm at. But it wasn't good for Adam to be what? Alone. So God also put us in relationship with others. But other people, it's not good for us to be alone. And so, so God put us in relationship so that the work we were supposed to do, we don't do by ourselves, we do with other people. We do with a spouse, but we do it with lots of other people. And then we have a, a relationship with the world. Okay, so God put us in this world and we have a relationship to creation. We're supposed to subdue it. We're supposed to work this world. We're supposed to name things and order things and get things. So there's this big wild field. And we're supposed to take it and turn it into something that will bear fruits. We're supposed to maximize the vines. We're supposed to actually do something and create in this world. And so we're in these relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. And what happens, though, is, is sin happens. So sin is a fancy word, but it just means missing the mark. It just means, like, we didn't do what we were supposed to do. We rebelled against God. So we said, no, God, we're going to do it our own way. And so what happens is there's a break in all of these relationships. Okay, so Adam and Eve, 
They're used to spending time with God face to face. But when they hear God in the garden, what do they do? They hide. They hide. What do they instantly know? We're naked. They didn't know that before. Now they are aware. There's a disconnect. Because they've broken relationship with God, they're not sure about themselves anymore. Okay? Their relationship with each other, how does that go? Hey, that woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Oh, that serpent, that serpent, there's automatically like a blame. There's a broken relationship with each other. And then with the world, you were meant to create. You were meant to have children. You were meant to do work in this world. But now there's what? There's toil and the labor. Now our relationship with the world is broken. And so through us, then the world gets broken. The world doesn't work the way it's supposed to be because we were supposed to be creating it and we're broken. So what do you think we create? Broken people can only break, make a broken world. So when we make churches, they're broken. When we make governments, they're broken. Hey, when we make businesses, they're broken. We are, we, that's part of our creation is we impart part of us into our creation. So what happens is these relationships are broken. So what God has to do is come in and fix the relationships. He has to come in and fix it, which is an amazing, amazing thing to think about. Because God could have just left us, but he didn't. He came in and he died on a cross to start to heal this gap. Okay, see how high tech we are? Okay, he died on a cross. What does the cross do? First of all, it shows us our need. Cross shows us our need. That somebody had to die on a cross. Paul says the wages of sin is death. I think better than saying wages are punishment, think of it like debt. Like we owe God so much for our rebellion, we could never pay it back. We could never earn it back. And yet what Christ does is come and earn it for us. Pays the debt for us. So that we can start to be healed in our relationship. And that God himself would love us that much. Man, that, that just... Starts to fix this. And what it allows us to do is start to see ourselves in a different way. Like, I, I'm not the broken person that everybody thinks I am. I mean, I am that. But I'm also more than that because I am who I am in Christ. My relationship with others I can look at differently. Because um, I can see them. If I'm disrespecting somebody else, well, Jesus died for that person. It's kind of rude for Jesus to love someone so much they die for him. And for me to call him a jerk. Okay? Those two don't fit. And my relationship with the world, I can go out of this world, and even though I'm broken, I can try to live out a life that's, that's repairing this world, that's healing this world. So the cross pays the debt. And then the resurrection. The resurrection does something even different. Because what do we say? A martyr is a great inspiration, but it's not a savior. For the resurrection to happen is to beat sin, is to beat death, is to claim the victory. If Jesus stays in the tomb, we've got a good example, but, but we, that's not something that saves us. But if he came out of the tomb, then the world is different. Okay, And then what Paul makes the point is that this is just a foretaste. In other words, this resurrection is going to keep happening that we don't, just working a, a, we don't just worship a risen Savior, but a Savior that's constantly rising. And a Savior that's going to rise all of us again. 
So there's a healing that takes place in the cross and resurrection that for Christians meant that even though the world gets crazy or I feel like the world gets crazy, I've got this center I can come back to. Everybody see the diagram? I think it's a great way of saying how God heals these different relationships in our lives. And for a lot of us, Maybe one or two of them we've worked on, but maybe we've never thought through what Jesus means for my work, what Jesus means for my family. Um, so there's, what I say, a diagram, two metaphors. So why is this important for us in our chaotic world today? Metaphor number one is baptism. Baptism. Now, baptism, the way we do it, Presbyterians like it in, like, we like stuff in order, Right? In good order, that's one of the phrases that we like to use as Presbyterian, which means we don't like dunking people in water, it gets all wet. Okay? We like to sprinkle because it's a little bit easier. But actually, we can dunk, we just don't have facilities to do that. Um, so, sprinkling doesn't quite catch this metaphor the way dunking somebody under the water does. Okay? Because actually, when we dunk somebody in the water, it is a death and burial and a resurrection. We are burying a person, and we are bringing them back to life. Here's how Paul says it. He's not talking about baptism, but, but I love how the language he uses. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. So that cross isn't just something, the cross isn't just something that Christ does for us. Paul says cross is something that happens to us. We are crucified with Christ. And then Colossians 3, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. So we die with Christ, but we also rise with Christ. So here it is in baptism. You literally, you're going into the tomb. You are actually dying. Actually, the metaphor works best if you hold them under a little bit. So they're like going out there like need air. Okay? You hold them under. And then you pop them out. And there's a gasp of breath, almost like a rebirth. Right? There's the death and the resurrection. And, and Christians took this so seriously that they would change their name when they were baptized. To this day, when I do a baptism, I will ask a question. I will say, what is the Christian name of this child? And I keep it in there on purpose. No one has ever changed the name for baptism, right? They, they, they spend months picking that name. They're not changing it for the baptism. But it's because historically, people would change their name. They would die to themselves and rise again. So much new life. That is why the cross and the resurrection is so important. People saw that not just as something Christ does for us, but something that happens to us in our baptism. We are, we die to ourselves. How many of you have stuff in your life you need to die to? Like, like you, need to, you, need to, you, need to, you need to whack some stuff in your life. Okay? That, that part of my heart swims with the fishes. We're getting rid of that part. And now I need new life in certain parts of my life. Now, so metaphor of baptism coming to death and resurrection I think helps show you how that connects. Now, one more metaphor. That is the cornerstone. This comes out of the Psalms about David, but Paul in Ephesians 
2.19 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Cornerstone. The, the Psalms and the, the Gospels make reference to this too. Actually say the stone that was thrown away became the, the cornerstone. In other words, the stone, Jesus being thrown away, being crucified, is the one that becomes the cornerstone. Let me explain a cornerstone. You see how this is a really good drawing. I, I like, had to work on this this morning. Okay, cornerstone. In the ancient world, this is how they built a lot of their buildings, with stones. Okay, but they didn't have the technology that you and I have. So, so for stuff to work, it's got to be real square. If you've ever done a project in your house and you figured out the room wasn't square, it is a pain. It is a total pain to work in a house that is not square. Okay? When you're stacking stones, the weight is a problem. Because it's great. Once the whole wall is in there, then the wall will help support itself. But while you're building it, the weight is especially on some of the hinge points of the wall, especially the cornerstone. So what was important was you had to get the one stone in place. So the cornerstone was normally bigger. So I try to draw that. It was normally very straight because you squared the whole house off of the cornerstone. It had to be bigger, it had to be stronger, it had to be very square. It had to be the right shape because the entire house would be built off of this stone. That's what a cornerstone was in the ancient world. Paul says, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. So here's what I think. I think as Christians, the death and resurrection of Jesus puts Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives. So I don't have to worry about exactly what's happening in this world because I know where my cornerstone is. Okay, That's, I'm going to build off of that. Jesus is the, the most straight, square, even strong thing you can build your life on. Like, I'm going to tell you, if politics is your cornerstone, be ready for a shaky wall. Okay? If keeping everybody happy, if wealth building, if, I mean, you, you insert all your cornerstones. Um, uh, there, if the, the success of your children, if, like, insert anything you want in here. If it's not Jesus, it's going to be a kind of a wobbly house. Okay? Cornerstone is Jesus. Which means, you know, whatever the economy does, whatever the conversations are in our world, whatever technology does, whatever, whatever. Like, and the answer isn't going to be fighting for justice, and the answer isn't going to come from the economy. It's not going to come from politics. What I know is that the actual problem with this whole world is people's hearts. And the only way it's going to get fixed is if Jesus fixes people's hearts. Which means it's got to start with my heart. And part of how I start to work on that is I make Jesus, I make the cross and resurrection so much the cornerstone that my life is built on that. It's not avoiding pleasure. It's not seeking pleasure. It's not avoiding pain or seeking pain. All those cornerstones are going to let you down. The cross and resurrection, that's what you build your life on. And then whatever the world does, it doesn't even matter. Whether, it is, whether it's getting better or worse. Whether I feel like it's getting better or worse, whether I'm noticing things that, that makes it look better or worse, none of that actually matters because I know how the story ends and I know where my cornerstone is and all those other things, yeah, I've got to deal with them. And yeah, I, I as a Christian want to have an impact on them, but, but I know where my cornerstone is. 
I know where my center is. That's my prayer for you this day. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.